Welcome to Cascades Bible Church. Well, for our time in the Word of God today, I would invite you to uh, turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, we're going to look at this text this evening for just a few moments, and then we'll pick up uh, another section of it on the Lord's Day as we look to the resurrection. But in uh, Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 5, Uh, Paul, the apostle, writes this. He says, Have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. And verse 8 is what we want to focus our hearts on tonight. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow on those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Philippians chapter 2 verses 5 to 11 is known um, as the great parabola of Scripture. Paul extends and expands upon his exhortation, beginning in verses 1 to 4, to preserve unity as worthy heavenly citizens, that we are to be uh, walk worthy in a way that is consequential to our calling in Christ. And then he leads us through one of the most sweeping arcs in these verses. Human language is stretched to its limits. It opens with Christ's eternal existence with the Father and the Holy Spirit. It transports us from heaven to earth in his incarnation, and it leads us to Jesus' humiliation at the foot of the cross before, after that, finally carries us back to the throne room of God in Christ's exaltation in heaven in verses 9 to 11. In this section, Paul uses such poetic and rich language, and that is intended to glorify our Lord and to press each one of us to walk in humility the way he goes about it is really, it's, it's masterful. These verses are loaded with profound thoughts and truths about Christ, things that uh, we could spend many, many hours studying and ex- explaining and, and thinking upon. His incarnation, his, uh, the cross itself, and even what the glorious future of all those things will be. And because those truths are so important and wonderful and do such an effective job of deepening our understanding and worship of Christ, it is easy and we have done this at times, to get lost in the forest amongst all the trees. But in these verses, we need to understand that Paul is calling you and I to walk in a manner worthy of our heavenly calling, and that our conduct must be equivalent to or measuring up to uh, the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. And what Paul makes clear here and elsewhere is that there is no genuine life in Christ, uh, and that isn't simultaneously by the power of the Holy Spirit being transformed into Christ's likeness. Uh, wherever there is life in Christ, there is transformation into Christ's likeness. That's why he says what he says in verse 5, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. This text calls believers to pursue selfless humility. It calls for us to do that collectively as the church, and if for that to happen collectively as a church, that has to happen individually in each of our hearts. And what better way to help us toward that end than to look to the cross? 
Beginning in verses 6 to 7, Paul pulls back the heavenly curtain and gives us a glimpse of Christ before he came to earth. He directs our eyes to take a look at the Son of God who gives. Beginning in verse 6 and at verse 7, the Son's eternal fellowship with the Father and the Holy Spirit reminds us of the magnitude of Christ's condescension in taking to himself true humanity. He says here, he says, have this attitude in yourselves, which is in Christ. And then he goes on to explain who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Everything Christ did to bring us salvation was the exact opposite of selfishness and empty conceit. God the Son didn't consider, he says, equality with God the Father or in God the Holy Spirit. He didn't consider that to consist of acquiring, grabbing, seizing, but instead one of pouring out his fullness to enrich others. And in what way did the Son of God pour himself out to enrich others? Verse 7 tells us he emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, literally, and being made in the likeness of men. Jesus broke into human history not as kurios, Lord. He broke into human history as doulos, slave, a person without advantages, no rights, no privileges, as a servant to all. The point is this, Jesus emptied himself pouring himself out, and the way he accomplished that was was by becoming a partaker of our human nature, being made, as it says, in the likeness of men. He was both truly God, Jesus was, and truly man. There's so much rich truth there that we have to drive past as we move on, but verses 6 to 7, we see the Son of of God who serves. Jesus isn't the one who grabs and takes, but by his very nature, as God of very God, he's the one who gives of his fullness to enrich others. But his giving isn't simply uh, shown in his coming to earth, although that's a part of it. His is shown, his giving in in his dying in the place of sinners. And as we said a moment ago, if we think of verses 5 to 11 as a great parabola of Scripture, then verse 8, which is our text for this evening, is the lowest point in the curve because verse 8 points us to the cross. The cross is the centerpiece of everything. The cross is the hinge point of human history. The uh, cross is the dominant theme of the Old Testament scriptures. The Old Testament sacrifices prefigure it. The law of God exposes our desperate need for it. And the Old Testament prophets, as we read just at the beginning in Isaiah 53 and so many other places, foretell it. So the cross is a centerpiece of the Old Testament scriptures, but the cross, and of course the cross is a centerpiece of the New Testament, the dominant theme of the New Testament. And so from cover to cover, Christ and his cross is the focus of all our human faith. Without it, the Bible makes no sense. Without it, salvation is beyond our capacity or our grasp. Jesus came, he says, in the form of a slave, as a servant to all. He is the Son of God who gives, but as we'll see in verse 8 in just a moment, he is the Son of Man who serves. The Son of Man who serves. And that service found its deepest expression in his giving his life as a ransom for many. So we want to look at that for just a moment. I want you to notice in verse 8 first, Christ humbled himself. Christ humbled himself. Being found, it says, in appearance as a man, 
He humbled himself. When Jesus walked the earth, how do people think about him? Well, they thought about him as a human being. They looked at him. To the casual observer, he looked just like them. Had they come into the world through the natural process of birth, so had he. Had they been wrapped in swaddling clothes as an infant, so had he. Had they grown up, so, had, so did Jesus. Did they have brothers and sisters, so did Jesus. Had they learned a trade, so had Jesus. Did they get hungry and thirsty and tired, so did our Lord. Did they grieve and even cry at times, so did he. Did they rejoice, for example, at weddings? He, too, participated and enjoyed a wedding. Were they destined to die? So was he. Jesus was recognizable as a human being because he is truly man, as well as being truly God. To the casual observer, he looked and acted just like anyone else. Again, to the casual observer. If you saw Jesus, the thing that would hit you most immediately about him was how normal he looked. And as a consequence of that humility, Jesus suffered a wholesale rejection as the Son of Man sent to rescue sinners like you and like me from eternal judgment. Jesus humbled himself. He made himself of no significance. He took on the posture of a slave. He abased himself. He made himself Lowly. That's what he means here in verse 8. Being found in appearance, outwardly he looked like a man. He humbled himself. And this, by way of implication, we must never become indifferent to one of the great characteristics of Christ, and that is that he is humble. He is humble. He never ever sought to dominate or assert or demand from others in his earthly ministry. He came to serve. He humbled himself. To what degree did he humble himself? To what depth did his humility reach? Well, Jesus humbling himself, as we commemorate on this Good Friday, truly bottoms out in his humiliation and his death at the cross. So we see Christ in his humbling himself, but secondly, we see Christ humiliated in the second part of verse 8. It's important that you look at Christ's death, not simply from a worldly perspective, that ignorant men crucified the Lord of glory, which is true, but that you look at it the way Paul does from a heavenly perspective, that Jesus' death was the ultimate act of obedience to the Father's will. He made himself, he humbled himself, it says, by becoming obedient unto death. Jesus viewed his death as an act of obedience to the Father. The term to, he humbled himself to the point of death. It speaks of degree. And Paul is drawing attention to the degree. Obedience took Jesus all the way to the place of death. It highlights the readiness of Christ to willingly choose the path that led to his crucifixion. This syncs up perfectly with our picture that Paul paints in the previous verses of the Son of God who pours himself out. He, he gives. He doesn't take. He, he, he pours out. He doesn't demand in response, he, he makes others rich while making himself poor. But it wasn't just any death that he died. Paul says Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. And then he adds this emphatic 
clause, even death on a cross. The rhetorical effect of that little phrase would have not been lost on his hearers, and it shouldn't be lost on us. As Christians in that day, living Philippians, living in a Roman colony in Philippi, contemplating death on a cross was chilling. Revulsion against this form of execution was, was significant. We put crosses on our Bibles and we hang them on our walls and we wear them as jewelry, and, but no first century Christian would have worn a cross as a decoration. Death by crucifixion was a horrific way to die in every way. And death on a cross, first, is a painful death, physically and emotionally. As a form of execution... Uh, crucifixion was borrowed from the Persians and was later perfected by the Romans. It was an unusually cruel and humiliating way of capital punishment and was generally reserved for slaves, for robbers, and for those who were rebellious, um, insurrectionists, and those kind of folks. In the West, the West meaning in that ancient day, the condemned criminal was scourged, beaten, usually at the place of execution, forced to carry the cross beam to the spot where the stake had already been erected into the ground, and a tablet stating the crime was often placed around the offender's neck and fastened to the cross after their execution. The prisoner was commonly tied or sometimes nailed to the cross beam, nails going through the wrists since the bones in the hands could not take the weight. The beam was then raised and fixed in an upright pole, and if the executioners wished a particularly slow and agonizing death, they might drive blocks or pins into that stake, that vertical stake, for a step or a seat to support the feet. Depending on the exact method of crucifixion, the person would eventually die from asphyxiation, shock due to loss of blood, heart failure, or exposure and dehydration. To speed things up, the victim's legs would often be broken below the knees with a club, causing massive shock and eliminating any further possibility of easing the pressure on their bound or spiked wrists. The point is this. Crucifixion is an agonizing way to die, physically. But beyond that, secondly, is not just physically uh, humiliating. It is a shameful death. Death by crucifixion is a shameful death. The person condemned to die on the cross was often forced to carry his own crossbeam, the very instrument by which he was to be executed. He would be expelled from the city to a place outside the gate where he would suffer a death that was considered the death of a slave. The person would be beaten and tortured beforehand, then often hung on this cross without clothing, naked and exposed, further amplifying their shame and their humiliation, often on a well-traveled road for all who pass by to see. So crucifixion wasn't simply a painful death. It was also a shameful death in a cultural context in which honor and shame were practically everything. Thirdly, It is not only a physically excruciating death and a shameful death, crucifixion is an accursed death. It is an accursed death. Deuteronomy 21.23 says, Accursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. This was true with respect to a dead body. How much more with the reference to the living and sinless Son of Man? 
Jesus Christ humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, Paul says, even death on a cross that bore the curse of God in our place. Galatians 3, verse 13, Paul says, Christ redeemed us, bought us back from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. While Jesus hung on the cross, from below Satan and all his hosts railed against him. From around him men mocked and spat upon him. And most significantly, from above, God the Father poured out his holy wrath for your sin and mine upon him. From which arose that bitter cry, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Into this absolute hell, the hell of the cross, Christ was humiliated. It is a physically humiliating death. It is a shameful and humiliating death. It is an accursed death. The cross, then, is where the one equal with God has most fully revealed to us the truth about who he is, and that is that he is love. And that his love expresses itself in self-sacrifice, in a painful, shameful, accursed, utterly humiliating death on a cross for the sake of those whom he loves. 1 John 4.10 says, In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us, and sent his son to be the propitiation or the wrath bearer for our sins. As you look intently, solemnly, as we do this evening at the cross, I want you to note where worship and obedience come from. It comes out of love. It comes out of love. Jesus won the hearts of men and women, not by forcing them through his power, but by showing them a love they could not resist. Look at Jesus. Look at the one who set aside his glory for sinners, who loved you, who humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. Here and only here our hearts melted. Here and only here is, a human, is our human resistance to following Christ truly broken down. When we gather to worship Jesus Christ on the Lord's day, and particularly when we gather around the Lord's table, it is to fall at his feet in wondering love. And that's what we've gathered together to do this evening. We don't come together as the church to say, I can't resist a might like that. We come together as a church to say, love so amazing, so divine, demands my life, my soul, and my all. That concludes this recording. We hope you have been encouraged by the message you have heard. For more information about the gospel of Jesus Christ, additional sermon audio, or information about Cascades Bible Church, visit us online at cascadesbiblechurch.com.